17:16-34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of our own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Good morning. How are we doing today? I, yeah, that's right. Give the Lord a hand. All right, two of you. All right, let's try it again. Give the Lord a hand. I like that. God is good to us. We're, his mercy is more, and he is the everlasting God. I get to preach to you my favorite passage from Acts this morning. I love this story. I love the moment that Paul comes into, at, at that time, one of the most important cities in the world and what he does in this city and how it shapes who we are and who we want to be as a church. And so I get to preach this great text, 
And, and as we talked about last week, the goal is to preach the gospel, to point us to Jesus, to find Christ in every text, and to preach the gospel from the scriptures. And so this morning, I have the privilege of doing that. But imagine if, like in the next two weeks, I had the opportunity to preach Acts 17 and preach what I'm preaching to you. So I'm, I'm getting to stand in front of you and do this. But imagine if I had the opportunity to preach this same text, the same gospel, the same Jesus in multiple places. Like, for example, imagine if I got to preach this text and do what I did a couple weeks ago. Now, I didn't preach from this text, but imagine I got to go preach to SWAT. You're like, what is SWAT? Sounds like something who, like, people are going to jump in here and come, come from the rafters on ropes and stuff. No, SWAT is the name of the Christian club at Eureka High School. So imagine I got to preach it there. Imagine I got to stand in front of a room full of highly educated skeptics at Washington University and preach Acts 17. Imagine if I had the opportunity to go preach Acts 17 and the gospel from Acts 17, but I was going to preach it at Victoria Gardens with uh, some of those this, the senior citizens who live in that community and in that nursing home uh, facility. Imagine I had the opportunity to preach to a gathering of NAACP leaders that were in the urban core of St. Louis. And I was going to preach Acts 17 to them. Uh, Imagine if I had the opportunity to preach this to a group of Afghani refugees who were uh, uh, coming to a place that was providing food and and clothing and and other items uh, as they try to get established here in St. Louis. Now, I'm preaching the same text and the same gospel, but imagine I just gave you a list of six different locations, including here, that I will be preaching that text. It it would be foolish for me to preach the same text and the same gospel in exactly the same way in those six settings. To begin with, with the Afghanis, I'm going to need an interpreter, which means everything I say is going to take twice as long because somebody's going to have to interpret it, right? But, but these people are going to come to their moments with different questions, different challenges, different issues, different struggles, different point of view, different worldviews. And, and the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of this story, that, that if you're a follower of Jesus and you're part of Genesis, we have shaped, we have founded our lives upon. It is our desire that every person hears the gospel, has an opportunity to believe in Jesus. The beauty of the gospel is that it is for all people. It is not exclusive. Now, it is exclusive in that there is only one gospel that will save you. But that gospel is for all people. And, and the, the work of the gospel that we have together as a church is to do all that we can to take that one timeless truth, the, the, the beautiful story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but do all we can to communicate that gospel and take that gospel to every tribe and every nation and every people. But we're here in Eureka, which means we have to know the people of Eureka and love the people in our city and figure out how to effectively take the gospel to them. The reason this is one of my favorite passages is that it is the story of Paul coming to this amazing city that is Athens. I don't need to introduce Athens to most of you. You, like immediately you have images that are popping into your mind. Paul, Paul was on a missionary journey with a group of people that included uh, T- uh, Timothy from the scripture. It includes Silas from the scripture. And they are traveling through what is modern day Greece. They started in the, the region called Macedonia, which is the northern end of Greece. 
And while they were there, they went first of all to the city of, of uh, uh, they went to Thessalonica, one of the great cities that still exists today. Uh, they, they started in the city of Philippi and planted a church there. And what's happening everywhere they go is that Paul preaches the gospel. He goes to the synagogue, so he preaches to Jews. And then he ends up in the marketplace where he preaches to the Greeks, the Gentiles, people who didn't grow up with the Jewish heritage and they don't know the Jewish scriptures and they don't come with the same worldview as the Jewish people. And he preaches the gospel, people believe, others reject. He plants a church, but he also gets beat up and abused and, and usually he has to leave a town and go to the next town, does the same thing. So he's gone to uh, uh, Philippi, he's ended up in Thessalonica. These are cities in the north. He ends up in the city of Berea that's on the edge of the mountain, preaches the gospel there. Uh, but, but eventually, in all these cities, he gets harassed by Jewish people who are following him around, and, and he has to leave that city. And we're told in the previous passage that what he did is he left Timothy and Silas in Berea, but he leaves and makes his way to the coast and what we understand this being is that he is now going to get on a ship and he is going to travel. So I, I've got my handy dandy little map and I have my laser pointer. Uh, somebody told me last week, I, asked, I was asking people if they liked me having a laser pointer, if it was helpful to have the map up here. And I got a yes, it's helpful for you to have a map so people can see where, you know, kind of visualize what's going on in the story and the laser pointer. But they said, but for the love of God, you get up on stage and you start moving your hands, you are going to blind us. So be careful not to get excited when you're preaching and shine this thing in our eyes because what, what we don't want to do is have to have a service where we learn about Jesus and a healing because now we can't see. Okay, so uh, I have my, my point here. We're going to go up here. So we're up here originally in this area of Macedonia and he's gone to these cities, Philippi, Thessalonica's about there, Berea's about over here. And then what happens is the, the Jews from Thessalonica followed him to Berea. He has been beaten up. He's been thrown out of the city. He leaves his two buddies behind who are on this journey. He hops on a boat and he travels all the way down around through this, this strait here and ends up down here at Athens. The, the city of cities. The, the place in the world that has shaped the world maybe more than any other city in history. The whole world at this point in time, in the storyline of the Bible, the whole world is a Greek. Now, the Roman Empire has taken over everything that the Greeks ruled. So in terms of power, they're now under Roman oppression and rule. But the world is Greek. Everybody in the world speaks Greek at this point in time. This is why the, the, when you read the New Testament, the authors who wrote what we're reading wrote the whole New Testament in common Greek, the Greek language of the masses, because Greek had become a, a, a global, or at least in, in that part of the world, the Middle East and, and Western culture, it had become the language that everybody spoke. The, the ideas that came from the Greeks, starting with Alexander the Great, were, were being spread. It's a season, it's a part of history that is known as Hellenism, and it all starts with what is going on in Athens. Athens is the home of the birth of philosophy. If you ever take a philosophy class, and I actually love philosophy, we're going to run into some of the philosophers here, but the, the whole birth of, of philosophy, and there's, there's discussion going on before Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, but, but that, the, 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 the ancient philosophers start framing questions 
that then Plato uh, and Aristotle have basically an argument over and produce two different worldviews. But the, the, the thinking about thinking that is going on in Athens turns into an explosion of culture that gets spread all over the world. We, we see it in the architecture of Athens and of, of Greece as a whole, but especially the architecture in Athens. I mean, you just got a picture in your mind. I'm going to show you a few pictures here in a minute, but in your mind, picture what Athens looks like. And you know that there's columns and there's, there's great buildings and there's all these temples to all these gods that Paul notices. But man, they're all just beautiful. There is art. Um, I, I will tell you how you can see this yourself. Just go to the St. Louis Art Museum. Take a trip through the art museum. And there will be rooms and places where they have uh, ancient art from multiple different cultures. And a lot of the art that is in these other rooms from, from Northern Africa, from uh, Mesopotamia, from other parts of the world at that point in time, is contemporary to the art that you will see when you go into the space of the art museum that is the Greek room. But boy, there is a massive difference in the beauty the thoughtfulness, the care of the art that came out of Greece. There's an explosion in plays and writing. All this stuff happens in Athens so that Athens, the city, became the central, the, the, the most important city when it came to things like art and culture and, and philosophy and thought and education, all these sorts of things. And Rome is trying to surpass it. Rome has now taken the power, but Athens was still the hub of the universe when it came to culture and ideas. And, and, and so Paul has hopped on a boat. He gets to the city, and, and he is wanting to be in this city to preach the gospel. By the way, it, Athens is also the place of the birthplace of democracy. There is much from the Athenian culture, the culture of, of Greece and Athens, that the early founders of our constitutional republic looked to the way they did government and shaped our government from the government of Athens. You see, this is an important city. And we know it. When, when, when the Olympic Games were there back in the, I think it was the 1990s, and I know that's like, like dating me, it's way back when, but all of the, the images of Athens, of all these beautiful buildings and all this sort of stuff that was part of that moment. Athens is just this amazing city. I've never been there. I would love to go there. I would love, like, I wish all the pictures that I would like to show you would be pictures of me from Athens. Haven't done it yet, but maybe it's on my bucket list. I would love to go there, and I definitely want to end up on Mars Hill where Paul ends up and he preached. It's a real place. Uh, and so what happens is, is Paul lands here, and he, he does what he always does. First of all, we're told that he saw the idols. I'll come back to that in a minute. He saw all the idols there in Athens. But he, and he is deeply grieved. He is perplexed. The, the, the seeing the spirituality of people who, on one hand, are seeking. Listen, everybody's spiritual. They are seeking and desiring to know something that is transcendent and eternal. But they have turned it into a city of idols. So he sees the idols and he is deeply grieved and moved. But his response to that is to go preach. And he goes to the synagogue where he always goes. He goes and preaches to the Jewish people and he preaches the one timeless eternal gospel in Athens to Jewish people and other people from that culture were starting to embrace the, the monotheism of Judaism. He preaches the gospel there. But we're also told that Paul went to the marketplace. 
This is a place called the Agora. It's actually the Greek word here is the Agora. But by the way, you can Google search. Just go Google search today if you want to learn a little more about Athens and Greece, where Paul was. Just go Google search Agora of Athens, and it will pop right up. It is one of the most famous places in the world. It is a, 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 the marketplace here is not like, hey, he went to the mall. There was a mall there. It was one of the first, it is a, there is a massive market with all kinds of shops. It was one of the first, if you want to call it, malls in the world. But it's kind of like if you want to compare it to something, think about like a town square in a county seat town, okay? You have this, you, you come in and there's all these other businesses and places to go, but you go to the center of the city and in the center of the city, there is a courthouse. There are uh, usually churches on the edges of this. Uh, you will end up with all kinds of shops and businesses, it, the the uh, marketplace, the Agora in Athens, was the center of everything when it came to commerce, trade, education, and thought, and religion. Uh, so in, in the marketplace, in this Agora, there are um, all kinds of, of temples everywhere. There are uh, schools and places of education and, and, and seats of thought. Uh, this is where many of the philosophers who weren't the high ups, but the people who like to think would end up uh, in the agora and have conversations. And you'd have debates and, and you know, soapboxes. The idea of the soapbox comes from this, where people standing on a corner in a soapbox proclaiming new ideas. It is the center of everything in this most important city in ancient history. And Paul comes and he starts preaching Christ for, at, uh, in the marketplace uh, after he preaches from the synagogue, he goes to the marketplace, and it's here where things get kind of weird because he ends up with these two groups of philosophers, and I'm laying the groundwork. I'm going to come back and explain all this in a minute. But he ends up talking to the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, uh, most of you, if you took philosophy class, what you did is you shut your brain off for the four months and just got through the class, right? And so when I say Epicureans and Stoics, you're like, Oh my gosh, I remember that. I have no idea what that means. But these are the two pop culture schools of thought in first century Greece. But they are direct descendants of the argument between uh, Plato and Aristotle. And I'm not going to bore you today with a ton of philosophy, but it's in the text. We've got to look at it. The, the Aristotelians, these are the Epicureans. And the Stoics, these are the, Plato, the followers of Plato are still alive and it's the pop culture thought of the day. And Paul ends up in conversations in debates with them. We're told in the text, in fact, take a look at, at a few verses here that happen in the text here. Look down at uh, verse 16, it says, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now that while Paul was waiting for them at Athens gives us a time, time stamp. He got to Athens, he started going through Athens, and then he decided it was time for Timothy and Silas to come to them. So you've got to understand, the time stamp is now the amount of time it's going to take to get a note, a letter to Timothy and, and Silas that says, come join me in Athens, and that note's going to get there. Timothy and Silas are going to finish up what they're doing in Berea and have to make the same trip. This is going to be several weeks. This is not like, you know, an extended weekend. Paul is preaching, he's teaching, he's interacting in synagogues and all this. He is provoked by the idols. He reasoned into the synagogue. That word reason there is, is interesting because it's the word that we get our word dialogue from. He's not just flat preaching. This was the method of Socrates. Conversation, questions, dialogue. It is the, the method of 
the philosophers. In other words, one commentator, John Stott, said this. He said, Paul came to Socrates' city, and he used Socrates' method. He is, he is dialoguing. He's, he's, he's hamming it up. He's, he's, he's getting in with these guys. And the Epicureans and the Stoics show up, and what they do is they, some of them kind of already are calling him a babbler. It's a, it's a Greek word that means a, a bird that's going around just picking up little pieces. It's, it was used for people who would come in a city, and they had no new ideas. They were just pulling a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They weren't understanding what Paul was saying. But some of them heard Paul preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the central message of the preaching of Acts. Preaching Christ crucified and risen. In other words, one message. Paul had one message. That's all he had. He's going to preach Christ and Christ crucified, right? And he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They hear that and they say, oh, he is preaching a strange deity or strange deities. More than likely what happens is these people are hearing him, they think he is trying to add to the pantheon of gods. And so what they do is they take him to the Areopagus. So they go from the Agora, which is just below where the Areopagus is, to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus was both a place and it was a tribunal. It was a group of people that met on the place. So I got some pictures of you that will help you understand this, all right? So here we go, first picture of Athens. That is the Parthenon, okay? That is the central building in all of Athens. It is the most famous. It is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple to the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom in that culture. They saw wisdom as their greatest Good, and therefore this idea of wisdom, the goddess of wisdom, this massive temple at the central point of the city. And, and just below this, we'll show you in just a minute, is where this place that we call the Areopagus sits. But, but this is, I mean, the whole culture of Athens is shaped by this. Every building on there is a temple to some god or goddess, including Zeus and Apollo and the different gods and goddesses of the Roman pantheon. They are very spiritual people, that their spirituality is wrapped up in the story of the mythology that you may have learned when you went to school. But just below that is this place. So go ahead and go to the next, next slide. This rock right here, you see it? I'm circling it. This rock right here is called the Areopagus, which is, is Greek for the hill of Ares. It will become known as Mars Hill. So hence, if you ever heard it talked about Paul going to Mars Hill, because Ares is the god of war for the Greeks, the Roman equivalent of that is Mars. Okay, so it's Mars Hill or the Areopagus, this hill right here, and it became a gathering place of this tribunal of leaders who would hear new ideas and make sure that these new ideas weren't going to make a mess in Athens, but they were always wondering, should we add this god or goddess to our pantheon? If, if Paul gets up here and preaches away and he convinces them, what they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to call a sculptor who is going to now chisel out a new image of a god or goddess, put it somewhere in the city, and now we have Jesus statue next to all these other gods, and probably the statue of Anastasia, which is the Greek word for resurrection. What they are saying is he's got two new gods he's trying to introduce, and Paul's going to come, and he has this chance to stand up here and make a plea for his new spiritual idea, his new concept. He's going to preach. And so here's kind of a, a third image from this there's all, the, all these people gathered 
who are on top of this. And what they would do is they would all sit on top of this hill and it formed, what, what you end up with, with a group of people who were called the Areopagus as well. So it's a hill with a tribunal that carry the same name and he is being now taken before him. There's some formality of this. There's some danger. This is the group of people who heard the ideas of Socrates and forced him to commit suicide because his ideas were too dangerous. That's who Paul is before in this moment. And he has the opportunity to preach Jesus. Wow, what a moment. What a point in history. He is in front of the most influential thinkers on planet Earth. What will he say? And Acts 17 gives us the answer. It gives us a a synopsis. History tells us that most of the time when people had the chance to do this, they were given three hours to speak and dialogue. I'm not going three hours today. I would love to. But you guys would give up on me way before then. And so we have 10 verses of what Paul said. It's a synopsis. But in these 10 verses, Paul does something that is amazing. He is preaching. Nobody here has ever opened the Torah. Nobody here has really even heard of the one true and living God of Israel. Nobody on this hill has thought about what we call a biblical worldview. They are here to determine if Jesus and Anastasia, the goddess of resurrection maybe, are two new gods they need to add to the pantheon. And from here, Paul preaches the one true only gospel to this crew of people. But what this teaches us, what this helps us with, is to realize that, that we end up, we, like we are in this culture. Few of us are going to end up at a Mars Hill. I am thankful for churches who are there. Like one of the churches that I highly respect is a church that's called Capitol Hill Baptist Church. A man named Mark Deborah who, who started a ministry called Nine Marks, whose church, I mean, just hear the name, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He is the pastor of representatives and senators and people who are in Washington. He is somebody who has influenced their church is literally in the shadow of the United States Capitol. And they have to work at what it looks like to contextualize the gospel. There's the big word that we're going to. Contextualize the gospel to that culture, that moment. We are here, and what we need to do is we need to see the world around us and work to take the one true and living gospel, but to proclaim it to our culture in a way that that addresses their challenges, their needs, their hurts, their wants, their wishes, and makes it understandable to people in our context. And it's something that, that we need to work on for the people who are on stage all the time. We always need to be asking, okay, if people from our context and community show up in Genesis, are we just like so out there that they won't understand? Are we talking to issues that, that don't really matter here? Are we addressing challenges? And, and you know, are we like, do we, have we become really churchy? Because sometimes what happens in church is that we are great at preaching to the people in the room to people who have their whole background and story is in church, but we're not very good at at making the gospel understandable to people who maybe haven't grown up in church and don't have the same story as we do. And so contextualization, here's here's a definition from a guy that I really uh, appreciate and value. His name is Tim Keller, who has done the same thing. This guy has planted a church in Manhattan, and he is preaching the gospel to Manhattanites, Wall Street people, people who are part of, of of Broadway and entertainment district, everything that is part of the whole Manhattan structure, he planted there. But here's his definition of 
contextualization. Contextualization is giving the people the Bible's answers, which they may not want at all, or which they may not at all want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and forms that they can comprehend and through appeals uh, and arguments with force that they can feel, even if they reject them. You, you see that? It's, it's, they may not want to hear the answer of the Bible, but what we do is we do make sure that what we're addressing and we're interacting with is speaking to people in their context, their story, their struggle, answering questions that they've raised uh, in forms that they can understand. So if Paul walks on Mars Hill and opens the Torah and says the Bible says, there, he is in a context here where nobody up there is going to know what the Bible, what the Torah, the Old Testament has said, nor are they going to see the Torah as a, uh, an authority. His gospel, the gospel that he preaches is thoroughly biblical. But one of the interesting things that happens here as he is on Mars Hill is that he never quotes the Bible. He gives the biblical narrative and the biblical story, but he doesn't quote a passage. And, and some have even criticized, saying, well, maybe this is Luke trying to say he didn't really do it right. No, it's not. This is absolutely what Luke is trying to see, the beauty of this moment as Paul speaks to these people. What he does actually quote are two of their poets and philosophers. And he ties what those people have said to the lungs of these people's hearts and shows them how the gospel alone answers those longings and questions and issues. This is what Paul does. He does it masterfully, and we must always be working it. But you're like, all right, I'm not the preacher. Listen, what I'm about to say here, first of all, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what the gospel offers you. But for those of us who know Jesus, I want you to think about your neighbors this morning. The people that you work with. Because a lot of us have said, I don't know what to say. If I open my Bible... They're just going to look at me like I'm nuts because none of them really believe the Bible is anything more than just a religious book. How do we articulate the gospel to people who don't start with the same presuppositions and understanding of the world that I do? And what we often do is we throw up our hands and go, I don't know what to say, therefore the easiest thing is to be quiet. But what Paul does is he gives us a model to follow, whether it's what we're doing up here or what you're doing in your life week to week with conversations that you have. He gives us a model to follow that helps us understand how we can take the true eternal gospel and speak to the people that are in our city. As we were, like a lot of us got to serve yesterday. It was a great time. Those of you who missed it, you should have been with us, okay? We got to serve our city yesterday at the Eureka Days Parade. And so what we're doing is, is we're all together as a group. We're cleaning up the parade route, uh, loving the city. I had a great conversation with uh, the associate director of the Eureka Parks Department, and we talked about two things. I asked her this question. Do you like Parks and Rec? And she said, absolutely. We laugh all the time at that TV show because it is our lives, okay? So, so just so you know, okay? Uh, they laugh at Parks and Rec. But uh, I, I also asked her, was just talking to her about the city and, and all this sort of stuff, and she, she was just so thankful for how we love and serve the city and, and our connection here and how, like, she, she was just really, really positive about who we are as a people. But I'm walking down, we're doing this as a church, walking down this, and I'm seeing hundreds and thousands of people who are lined up on the streets. And my question is this, how do we as a church take the gospel we believe, but make sure that we are communicating if we are in conversations with people who went yesterday, but they have no interest in being in church this morning? Those people matter to God. 
And the story starts with Paul going, my heart is broken over the idolatry. Not because he's mad at people because they're idolatrous. His heart is broken because he knows that they have, are you ready for this? Approximately 30,000 gods that have statues in the city. There was a person who said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a human being. There are statues everywhere of the gods. They're all human-formed beings who have some kind of characteristic. But what they've done is they have taken themselves, projected it into spirituality, and made gods who look just like them. Why is Paul's heart so provoked and angered? Because he knows these people are lost and desperately in need of the gospel. And if he doesn't make it known, that spirituality, which is a good thing, a desire to know something greater is a good thing, but that spirituality has a a, a mark that is leading these people straight to hell. Listen, we live in a culture that is super spiritual. But we also, what's happened in the last 16 years since we planted Genesis Church is that we are growing in a culture that's more and more secular And therefore, there are fewer and fewer people where if we open up and start with, you know, the Bible says, will give us a hearing. Like, fewer and fewer people in our our culture have ever read the Bible or see it as anything more than just a merely human book. And a lot of people in our culture actually believe the Bible is a source of oppression and regression in our culture. And it's just kind of terrifying because it's like, well, I believe the Bible. I do too. But if we start with the Bible, sometimes that ends the conversation. And so Paul helps us see how we interact with this. And what happens is there are literally four different things that happen in the way Paul preaches. He is addressing four different issues that are going on in every culture's uh, story, every culture's issue, every culture's worldview, every culture. And so this is a culture like the culture of Eureka we're talking about now. But everything I'm going to say is also the culture of the home of the people living next door. There are issues that are culture-wide, but they get all the way down to every individual. And what happens is that Paul shows us masterfully how the gospel is the solution to every issue. And that if you think through these things, you can start finding very creative ways to to, to have dialogues, to not get preachy, but to, to have conversations with people and engage some of these issues. He does it so well. And the first thing is that the gospel itself addresses the cultural story. It addresses the cultural story. What happens is every culture has these framework narratives that help us understand ourselves. For example, in St. Louis, one of the, the things that shows up that helps us understand our cultural story, there's actually a cultural question that, that St. Louis asks, which is what? Where'd you go to high school? It's a crazy, weird question for people who move here. But there, that is attached to a larger cultural story that has to do with the spiritual background and story that came to, came to St. Louis. And it has to do with the combination of, first of all, a high degree of Catholicism, but the fact that the, that the Catholicism in our city showed up in, in French and, and Irish primarily framework, and then the Italian uh, framework came in the middle of it. And so you had these three dominant immigrant groups who were all Catholic, and all of a sudden the high schools arose out of those different groups, right? That is part of our cultural narrative. A cultural narrative is, is a, a framework, a story that helps uh, a group of people understand themselves, see the world. It is a way of describing a worldview. It is a way um, that uh, uh, shapes 
uh, their understanding of things like history, uh, the history shapes uh, a culture story, a worldview, the way that like who their gods are, what their spirituality will shape it, their sense of identity and purpose. Where do people in a given culture or in a given household, how do they understand who they are, their sense of identity, their sense of purpose, their sense of meaning in life? Who the heroes of the culture will help us determine this? We find the, the larger cultural narrative in movies and TV and in music. Every song is preaching something about a narrative, a story. And, and what Christians need to be is be, we need to learn the story of our culture. We need to understand the framework, whether it's here locally or worldwide. The, the movie Pretty Woman which I'm not suggesting go watch this, but it's interesting. It begins and ends with this guy who's walking through the street, and he is shouting, uh, what's your dream? Everybody comes here to Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood. What's your dream? Everybody comes. This is Hollywood, the land of dreams. Some dreams come true, some don't. But keep on dreaming. This is Hollywood. Always time to dream, so keep on dreaming. What's your dream? Now listen, that is the Hollywood narrative that come come here and try dream big maybe you'll make it maybe you won't but boy you come here the whole idea of hollywood is about that that is the cultural narrative of hollywood but that cultural narrative of hollywood is now the cultural narrative of our country my, my wife grew up as a southwestern piasaw bird anybody else ever heard of that as a mascot like what's a piasaw bird well, believe it or not, back in the day, you could actually drive towards, uh, from Alton towards Godfrey, and there was a Piasaw bird painted on the bluffs. It is a, a reminder of, of a time where Native American people who lived in this part of uh, near the Mississippi there had a cultural story about this, this bird who would come out and, and take their livestock and their children and kill all kinds of people. But the whole story is about this, this um, a chief from their tribe offering himself up as a sacrifice so the rest of the people in the tribe could kill the bird. And the bird came out of the Mississippi River is where it came from, and it flew up, and it had all these, it's just a crazy-looking beast of a thing, but uh, he, he, he tied himself to a stake. It is a cross-type story. And he's giving himself as a sacrifice. Meanwhile, the, the uh, rest of the tribe is hiding and come out, and they kill the bird. That is a cultural story. And what happens is, is all around us there are cultural stories. In Athens, there was a cultural story. And the Epicureans and the Stoics were a big part of that story. They understood themselves as wisdom, as the most important thing. In fact, the text tells us, what did the Athenians like to do? They like to, like to sit around and listen to the new ideas. This is who we are. This is our story. And so you had the Epicureans and the Stoics who were, who were present. They are the, the pop culture. They are the, the, the musicians and the, the, the artists who are making music and writing plays of the day. They're the philosophers who are seeing the world. The Epicureans were materialists. And they saw the whole world as, there may be gods, but those gods don't have any real involvement so, so they, with the world. So they'd look at the gods, and they would tip their hat to them and acknowledge them. But what they said is, listen, the only thing that matters is happiness in this life. Let's eat, drink, and marry, be merry. Let's go for the gusto. Let's, so they became hedonists who gave themselves with, like, they were careful because they realized if you overindulge, it leads to not happiness. It leads to addiction, all kinds of other trouble. And so what they said is, you have to find balance in life through the most pleasure you can get without ruining your life. That was the balance. So that was their whole philosophy, Epicureans. The Stoics 
were actually pantheists. They said everything was God and God is everything. They saw the gods together collectively as representing something bigger. But the Stoics as, as people, their story, the, the way they saw the world was that, that, that meaning and purpose and beauty in life came about through a quality, quiet life where passions are suppressed. So happiness is a figment of your imagination. You will find purpose and meaning if you don't go too hard for fa- happiness. You don't, you don't get too stuck in grief. And so, so, so they said, live this life that is kind of just stoic. I mean, we get our word and, and straightforward and, and just does your duties well and serves the city well and does the things you're supposed to do as a human being. You will find purpose and meaning if you don't get stuck in the emotions of life. Now, these are Plato and Aristotle 400 years later. That's what they are. And, and that's the narrative that shapes the way the whole city saw itself. And what Paul does is he comes and he preaches the gospel. Look at what he says in verses 23 through 27. It is actually beautiful when you understand who he's speaking to and what he's saying. saying. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the Missy Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are, uh, <clears throat> I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Notice that Paul doesn't come after and go, you bunch of idolaters, how dare you worship He acknowledges and actually commends their spirituality, but then he says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Well, therefore you worship as unknown, this this I proclaim to you. You see how he is framing the gospel from their story. He's saying, you have this crazy spiritual longing, and it shows up everywhere. It is the narrative of this city. The narrative of this city is all the gods and all the philosophy, and, and, and at the top of the city, the, the, the highest gods. But you have this one, like I found this, this one column with this one inscription to the unknown God. And I'm here to tell you that he is the only God. That, that this is in your ignorance. You are already worshiping the one God, but he says, look at what he says. The God, uh, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Temples everywhere, where they're containing their gods. He says, listen, the, the true God doesn't live in temples. He doesn't, like, we can't trap him, we can't confine him, we can't manipulate this God, but this God uh, is not served, verse 25, served by uh, human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Their whole narrative was pick a God and serve that God because it is our service of the gods that gives the gods power. And here's Paul going, listen, the God who is doesn't need you. He is for you, but he doesn't need you. He is not, you do not add to the glory of this God. And verse 26, he made from, every, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This whole thing, and there are, are, are like, every phrase is dripping with meaning for the Greek story, the way they see the world. And he is reshaping the story to say, listen, Greek people, you're spiritual, it's a really cool thing, but I have a better story for your life. 
I have a better story for your life. This is, the people in our culture, they have stories, they have narratives. We run into people who have all kinds of issues and challenges, and it shapes the way they see the world, it shapes the way they see themselves, it shapes the way they see their lives. We have people in our culture who's, who's like their narrative of life is that they grew up in a home where guilt was used as a motivation, and they feel so much guilt, and they come to us, and our story, like if you hear their story, if you learn them, you can look at people who, who their whole narrative is a, a narrative of guilt, and you can say, listen, I want to tell you about Jesus, because at at the foot of the cross, the beauty of the gospel is this, your guilt has been dealt with. We have people who who come with a story in our culture where their story is about rejection and loneliness, feeling like nobody cares about them, and we can look at them and say, the gospel tells a better story for you. The gospel is this, that the God of this universe sent his son as a way to say, I love you, and I will never leave you. We, we can look at people whose story is pride and arrogance and they feel like they're all that matter in the world and that's a big part of the cultural narrative here in Eureka and West County. We think we're like the tantamount of importance. We can look at them and say, listen, you are trying to do what everybody in the world does. You're trying to say your world is about your story. That story's too small. That story's too small. You're, you're never gonna find fulfillment. Dump in your own chest and toot in your home. Let me tell you, there is a greater story. The gospel is inviting you to know the true and living God and to give your life to something that really will make your life count. The gospel is a better story. Now, now watch this. The only way we know this, though, is by listening and engaging people. What is it about their life that really shapes their view of themselves and their world? What's their story? And how does the gospel take that story and offer something that is way better? I think sometimes our struggle in sharing the gospel is we feel like what we're coming to people is going, I know this is what you think is important, but you have to give everything that is there up and come and live a life of being bored and listening to long-winded preachers and, and you know, like not be happy anymore, but if you do that, maybe you'll go to heaven. That is not the gospel in the New Testament. The gospel in the New Testament looks at every one of us and says, what's your story? What's your story? And then says this, Jesus has a better story for you. He has a better story for you. You get it? It's exactly what Paul does here. Second thing Paul does here is he addresses their cultural idols. Um, He sees the objects of their worship and he does confront those idols with the gospel. He doesn't attack them for their idolatry, yet he does point out that their spirituality has led them to a place where they have replaced the true and living God with things that are made with their hands, with objects of worship. Why does he do this? Why is idolatry so important? Well, obviously in this city, there's 30,000 of them. But every idol represents a God they have created in their own image that fulfills a need that they hope that God will, will meet. This is what happened when you go all the way back to the beginning of the story of the Bible and Adam and Eve are given a choice by the serpent, Satan, tempting them and says, listen, if you eat of the fruit, you get to be God. It's the central temptation and issue that we call sin. Sin The things we do that are sinful are not the core issue. The core issue is that we have decided we don't really want the true God. We want to be God. But once we did that, we are spiritual. And so we find ways to create objects of our worship that become 
the things we, we give ourselves to, and where we run when we feel like we are in trouble and need something. We, we no longer, like Eureka, well right now is the wrong time. We do have images of ridiculous things all over our city. They're called scarecrows, but <clears throat> maybe I should be grieved about that, just saying. Uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> but what we do have is in the palm of our hands devices where all of our gods and goddesses are right here. And with any one of us, we could, I could take your iPhone, your tablet, your device, and spend half an hour looking at it, and I could figure out what the objects of your worship, where do you run for for your identity, and what are you looking towards to, to answer your hopes and dreams and, and fulfill your problems and, and desires in life. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory and because uh, we are always making our own idols. Uh, Paul, who is here, wrote this. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they refused to acknowledge God, but they were still spiritual. So what did they do? They created their own gods in their own image. Notice that that's what's happening in the story. And what Paul is looking at them is saying, you can't add Jesus to your pantheon. There is a sense in which a lot of places in Christianity, this is what's going on. That, that what people want to do is they want to take and baptize Jesus into the way they see the world. They want Jesus to be the new version of, I want what I want, and I'm going to get it from the God that I create. And so we end up with a Jesus who is my genie, who gives me what I want. A Jesus who is shaped really in my image. And, and hear this. What has to happen with our idols is that they must die. And we must turn repentance. This is why Paul says God is now at the point where he's telling everybody they must repent because he has sent the man Jesus and fixed the day for judgment. We must turn from our idols. He confronts the idols of the culture with the gospel. We have to be willing to do this. Third thing that Paul does masterfully is he steps in and begins to answer the cultural questions. Every culture has questions that are being framed by people in that culture. We see this in, in this story uh, when Paul quotes their poets. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, this is, this is like deeply philosophical, but the, the philosophers of the previous 600 years have been trying to answer three questions. Question number one is, where does life come from? Question number two is all about the question of motion. And, and it's this big overact, you know, things move. The planets are moving. Like we see the stars in the sky, they go from here to here. How do we describe and explain that? We see water, it is moving. And they don't have all the scientific answers yet, although they're starting to have them. But this idea of motion, but at the core, they're trying to take that motion all the way back and say, what was the first thing that moved? And so, so motion, and the third thing is being, like existence. And, and where is true being uh, uh, take place? And at the core of that is the question of being or becoming. What is more important? Is it who I am now and what my being is, or is it what I am becoming? And this whole, all these things, and I, I can spend, you know, again, three hours trying to unpack all these, but understand this. Here's the thing. Those were the cultural questions of the day. And what Paul does is he says, all these things are summed up in the God who made you. You're not going to understand your life 
You're not going to understand the motion of the world, the way the world moves and functions, and you are not going to understand your identity and your being until you find the one who created you. In him we live and move, our, have our being. Because we are all really from, we are his offspring. He's the one who, who created us. And, and he's, again, quoting one of their poets, one of their philosophers, but he is engaging this. What are the questions of our culture? If you come into Eureka, our neighbors and friends, like this is one of the things I would challenge you this week in community group, just to say, what are the big life questions that people in our culture have? I, I'll give you three that I think are going on right now. I think we have people in our culture are raising the question of how do I make my kids happy? And believe it or not, the gospel has a beautiful answer to that question. I, I think people in our culture are wrestling, like there is this massive fear in the political realm of certain ideologies taking over and reshaping our whole story. And so there's a big fear of liberalism in our culture. Like, and I say that, it's just, I hear this conversation all the time here. That, you know, if this group of people take over, does the gospel answer that? And I think another big question that gets answered is how can I get enough? I want to have enough to give all my kids the experiences they want to have. I want to, I want to have enough to buy myself a lake house, or I want, to, I want to have enough to be able to own a certain house and live in a certain neighborhood. And as you get older, it's, do I have enough for retirement? Like, these are the questions. And, and, and what happens is we have to wrestle with the questions people are answering. We often give the right answers to the wrong questions when we try to proclaim the gospel in our culture, right? That's, that's the idea. And last thing here is culture defeater beliefs. Um, and I gotta hit this really quick, Paul does it really well, but the bottom line is a defeater belief is something that a culture believes that they think is like the trump card that proves that they can't believe the gospel, that it's not true, okay? In this culture, their whole view of the world came from these first two philosophers, but the bottom line is they believed that salvation, every version of salvation in their culture believed that salvation was release of the body from the, the physical world. That they saw the physical world as a form of evil, but the spiritual part of us was good. Okay, this is like pure Platonism, but the idea is that, that the release of the body, the, the spirit from the body was the ultimate salvation for our humanity. And here's Paul saying, nope, it's the resurrection of the body that is the ultimate story. It was the defeater belief. And when he gets to the resurrection, they cut him off. The, 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 his preaching time ends when he preaches the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But what he has said is, I'm not telling you a, a, another God to add to the pantheon. I'm telling there is one God. He has sent his son into the world, and he proved that he alone is God by raising Jesus from the dead. He has addressed with clarity the defeater belief. So let me tell you some defeater beliefs. People like, you, you know this, you bring them up and, and just immediately people write you off. And what we can't do is we can't run from them. We must lovingly try to explain why the Bible frames the question this way. Here's three, real quick. Number one, God is judge is a defeater belief. We live in a culture that wants a, a soft, fluffy God who doesn't judge people. When you start talking about the fact that God judges people in the world, from this text, people are going to go, nope, I, I don't believe in a God as a judge. I just think he's going to give everybody a hug, and at the end of the day, it's all going to be good. It's actually a really silly belief, but it is a belief that our culture holds. It says, once you start talking about hell and, and, and justice and judgment, nope, I'm not in. I'm out on that. A, a, a second one is the story of Christian sexual ethics. Is it a feeder belief in our culture? You know that. 
And we have to learn how to lovingly engage that question and help people see the clarity of the beauty of a better story in the gospel. A, a third one here in Eureka is that people have become so vaccinated to the gospel, for many of them, that they believe they're Christians. It's a defeater belief to talk about Jesus with them because they're like, oh, I already believe that. And they don't know Jesus from a hole in the wall, the true Jesus. But they think because of their heritage and background and story that they are already in. But the bottom line is we must preach the gospel so that the feeder beliefs are challenged. Now, this is what Paul does. It's a great text and I can tell you so much more from it. Spend some time rolling up your sleeves and interact with this text. But here's the bottom line for us this morning. This is for you. So if you zoned out, come back to me. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if this whole Christian journey is kind of something you're exploring, you're not sure about Jesus at all, you are skeptical, you have big life questions, let me tell you, don't run from Jesus, run to him because he has a better story for your life and the gospel does give good, deep, rational answers to your deepest questions that you will find fulfilling if you will let us get you to those. If you come in here this morning and say, I just like, the, the, the sexual ethic of the church, I just, I, I think it's silliness. I just can't believe that. Don't run from Jesus. Come, let's have a dialogue about what, what Jesus said and why he said it and how this single man who never got married has the best advice for us in our sex lives. Or if you're like, I can't believe it, I got, come have a conversation. Don't run. The Bible does give you a better story. It answers your questions and it will call you to give up your gods and come to the only God who can truly satisfy and, and the rest of us, it's our person and per purpose and passion in Eureka to intentionally preach the one true gospel, but in a way that is contextualized for our city. And the thing that we have to be careful about is that we only know how to talk to churchy people about the grace of Jesus. And the way we do that is the band comes up and we're going to worship Jesus here in a minute. The way we do that is learning people's stories, paying attention to their idols, and knowing our own. It is wrestling with the, the way they see the world and the framework for how they raise the biggest questions of life. What is it that, what are the big questions of their life? And it is understanding the things that they think are the trump card that are, I can't believe in Jesus because of this. And is learning how to engage those in conversational ways with people that we love. We don't have to walk in with our Bible, throw it on the table and say, I'm going to open these verses and prove to you. We, in conversation, we can wrestle with these and help people see that the gospel is a better story. It is a better story, by the way. It absolutely is a better story. God has a better story for your life and the life of your neighbors than you do and they do. But we must show them Christ to do that. And Paul, three responses in Athens. Some of the people just rejected him. That's going to happen. It's okay. Some of them said, we want to hear more. And that's amazing, right? If you're like, hey, let's have a conversation. At the end, they're like, I don't believe, but I want to keep this conversation going. Woo, that's a win, right? And there were some who believed, and believe it or not, one of the people who was part of the Areopagus became one of the first Christians in Athens. And we see that too. And so that's our prayer and our hope. We got to work at it up on stage here. My challenge to you is to take this and wrestle with how to do it. Talk about it in community groups this week. How do we take the one true gospel and stay true to it while making sure that we are preaching the gospel to our city and our culture? Lord, we love you. Thank you for this amazing story. <laughs> this amazing text that has so much in it. And I pray that we will become more and more like Paul intentionally 
sharing the gospel to our neighbors and friends and finding ways to show people that the narrative of Jesus is so much better. And uh, Lord, let us acknowledge this morning that we really do live and move and have our being in you. In your name I pray, amen.